event that happened in Johnstown, PA in 1923 that is affecting current events in the black community that reside there today. I will read you a section from that article and then explain how it connects to our scripture for today. He writes, in Johnstown, PA, on August 30th, 1923, a shootout in a Rosedale neighborhood resulted in the death of Robert Young, a black man, who by accounts from the time was drunk, as well as police officers, Otto Newcomb, Otto Fent, Joseph Lewis Abrahams, and John James. In response, Johnson's mayor, Joseph Caulfield, issued an edict. He says, I want every Negro who have lived here less than seven years ago to pack up his belongings and get out. He also called the banning of any black or Mexican laborers from coming to the city and prohibiting gatherings of black citizens for any reasons except church services. Ku Klux Klan men burned crosses around the city. Pennsylvania governor, my body is kind of reacting to some of this, so sorry if I'm kind of in this moment here, but Pennsylvania's governor, Guilford Pinchot, admonished the governor, well, the, the mayor, whose proposal never took legal effect. But an estimated of 500 black citizens nevertheless left the city within weeks after the edict. So as you listen to this historical story, which is our story, because it's in our state, what emotions surface for you? How do you think these people of color must have felt when they were demanded to leave? Now, don't flee from your fragility or say this happened 100 years ago, it doesn't take me, but actually consider these two questions. What emotions actually arose, arise in your body as you listen to these questions? And how do you think those people of color must have felt when they were demanded to leave their city? I am sure there was a climate of fear, rage, and grief within this black community. I'm sure black neighbors were persuaded to conform to the disease of whiteness, to never again disrupt the white imagination of comfort and safety. I'm sure there were questions and doubts about, will we always live with the demand to co-switch in order to fit into the mold of the dominant culture? And I'm sure white families including their bodies, including their children's bodies, felt a deep sense of relief. Finally, no more violence, no more shared space. Those black people are gone. The uncertainty of pack up and get out or else translates to what the Antioch Church in Acts, a thriving, Diverse community must have felt as they awaited Jerusalem's decision to be received into the body of Jesus. 
I'm sure the Gentile Christians have questions too. The questions of, wait, what are you talking about? We are completely confused. I thought we were in the right with Jesus. You even modeled for us that we had everything in common. I get it, we're Jews, we don't always agree, but what's the problem now? Your friends from your Jewish community come to teach us something new. Are you saying to become Christian, we have to convert to Judaism? Are you saying that to belong to Jesus, we need to renounce our ethnic identity too? These people have been carrying this guilt feeling of unsure acceptance. I can only imagine the emotional disturbance and restless agitation caused by the deceivers claiming to be sent by the Jerusalem church. Have you ever felt the fear of not being accepted by a community? As a black minority, I know I have. Being the only few person of color in this room, I know that I have. Maybe some of you haven't because you are in a group where everyone looks like you or thinks the way that you do and you don't have to think about the unsure acceptance of a community. See, it's easy to believe we are accepted by God, but to believe we his people are accepted by other Christian communities may be a different story for most. So, let us begin reading the letter to, to the Antioch church together to hear Jerusalem's response and how their response straightens the path towards oneness. So again, as we read this, let's immerse ourselves into the sandals of Gentile Christians living in Antioch and their experience as minorities in this biblical story. In Acts 15, starting in verse 23, the letter begins with a warm welcome. It reads this. It'll come up on your screen. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agree to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Saul, men who are risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what they are writing. It seems good to the Holy Spirit in us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Just like that. Here's the letter. From the get-go, the Jerusalem Council addresses the core issue between false teachers and the Antioch community. Not everyone who goes out from the church is endorsed by the church. Say it again. Not everyone who goes out from the church is endorsed by the church. 
they expressed sorrow and regret that this issue even came up. They explained that Gentiles didn't need to become Jewish and thus take on the full weight of Mosaic laws in order to be accepted within the Jewish community. Reading this letter over and over, I can imagine the relief it brought to these people of this community of minorities that they did not have to conform. But just notice all the pronouns. If we read this letter, it's, it's we, it's all, and it's us. These words speak of unity and belonging. See, these, this letter isn't just about a decision being made or settling an idea or settling things in order. It's a letter that's also infused with a heart of guidance and compassion. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Friends, this is kingdom language. It seems good, and it was good, and here's why. James, Jesus' half-brother, wasn't his full brother because his real daddy was in heaven. This is his half-brother. Provided a suitable solution that didn't jeopardize the mission to the Gentiles or the fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. All parties seem to be satisfied with James's suggestion. Again, this letter communicates kingdom language. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to join together, to be one, to be family. The beautiful part of this letter is that they not only wrote the letter to the Gentiles, but they also sent two representatives from the Jerusalem church to Antioch, along with Paul and Barnabas. The two reps, Judas and Silas, will be able to give their interpretations of the letter's contents in a meeting in Jerusalem. Good communication was critical in this sensitive issue so that there will be no misunderstandings. This way, if any questions or concerns arose, they will be there present to answer them. I don't know about you guys, but I need people face-to-face. It's so important for me. But let's not forget that they traveled a distance for this letter. There were no cars. There was not Southwest Airlines. There was no planes at this time to make their journey easier. Traveling from Jerusalem to Antioch, either by foot or beast, will be taken anywhere from 10 to 15 days. It's a long way of journey. They were determined to bridge the gap within, with the brothers and sisters in the faith. I have a question for you. Are you willing to travel the distance to repair what seems to be broken? I'm going to say it again, church. Are you willing to travel the distance to repair what seems to be broken? I know the leaders of Jerusalem were willing. They were trying to avoid any danger of, of relational and spiritual disunity. They traveled. They traveled the distance. So again, they sent representatives, Judas and Silas, 
It was very interesting when I was reading about Judas and Silas, I got to know a little bit more about their cultural background. Judas is a Jewish back, uh, name that lends credibility to the Jewish believers. Silas, on the other name, was a Roman citizen who can speak from the Hellenistic and Jewish, and, and sorry, the Hellenistic and Gentile perspective. Now, when I read that, I was kind of blown away because these guys weren't just blindly picked out of a fishbowl, but rather they were intentionally picked to represent their own people in a very honorable way. So for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of gospel unity, cultural and ethnic representation matters, church. We need people who look like us, who look like me, who look like you. We need those who are there for us. We need those who are there and with us advocating for our belonging. So Judas and Silas are important in the story of unity. What's interesting is that Judas and Silas were also referred to as church leaders in verse 22. However, in verse 32, they're referred to as prophets. Prophets. What perfect people to send to strengthen and encourage the Antioch church. Prophets. We need prophets to encourage the church these days, right? We're living in times of despair and we need prophets. This is a beautiful picture of unity and repair for the, from the Pharisees' damage. This enabled the saints in matters of the gospel to relay a firm foundation of unity. Prophets, church. Judas and Silas continued to say to the Antioch church, we don't want to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Notice in the context of their language, there is no language of law giving or weighty matters of obedience. They didn't say if you keep yourself from these four things, you'll be safe, or you'll be righteous, or you'll avoid sin. It simply says you will do well. You will be good. You will be okay. They kept the focus on the new customs of Jesus rather than following Jewish customs. This again affirms the idea that the new boundaries being affirmed and offered in the spirit of unity and peace to the early church are for the common good of everyone. If you Gentiles keep these cultural practices, you will avoid offending your new Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith. He essentially saying, be sensitive to your brothers and sisters in the faith. In church, we need to be sensitive to our brothers and sisters in the faith. Often I forget this in heated discussions where I tend to elevate my rightness, my pride over my brothers and sisters' well-being. 
We need to grow in our sense of sensitivity towards one another. The language of sensitivity remind me of what, reminds me of what Apostle Paul urges the Ephesian church to do. I know we said this weeks ago, but we make this plaque, we put this plaque in our house, but we often don't even follow it. It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We need to be reminded that we are one. We need to be reminded that we need to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. God wants oneness, and he wants his people to maintain this oneness. Friends, this letter should still encourage us today to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Unity is not a good idea, just a good idea or a concept that started in the 21st century. We are not starting something new here by gathering each Sunday, but rather we are living in the aftermath of this letter by continuing the sacred work of unity. See, most of us approach this letter with our Western imaginations, believing that the leaders at the council meeting making all the decisions are people like George Washington, Christopher Columbus, Frederick Douglass, or any other non-Jewish spiritual leader. But that's not the case at all. Show of hands, how many of you guys in here are Jewish? Not a lot of people. That means that you and I, you and I are Gentiles. Right? We're at the same level. So theoretically, we show up into Israel's story as Gentiles. But we have been told through our American history that we are the, the Jews and anyone else of color it's Gentiles. So we come with our own imagination of interpreting Scripture as we are the ones who bring the word to those outside of whiteness. But we, church, none of you guys are Jewish. No hands were raised. So that makes that you and I are theoretically receiving a letter from one person Jewish. One out of how many people in here? Again, they are writing, theoretically, they are writing the letter to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them to include us into their story. So thank the Lord that he wants to unite us into his plan, into his story. Amen? Amen. We clap it up to that. That's, we got it. Yeah, it's like if we, if we show up to the story as Gentiles, there is much more celebration 
But as Americans, we often think that we're the ones who are the gatekeepers, the ones who write scripture. But no, we show up later in the story of God's story. There was a, there was a pastor who said that in, in the biblical times, to find a white person was like finding a unicorn. You wouldn't find them there. You'd find a black person, because they were like the biblical times was right near Africa. But we show up in the story as Gentiles church. Um, unity is something that Jesus takes very seriously. It has been his great purpose to bring the whole creation into full unity unto himself. Jesus even prayed for the church, his bride, as he was on the cross, praying that we will be unified together. I don't know about you, but in my last breath, I ain't praying for y'all. I'm praying like, is me and you, are we good? Or like, I don't know, <laughs> like to pray for someone else. So it takes a lot of like otherness to do that. He says, may they be one, Father, just as you and I and me are one in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given the glory that I have been given the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought into a complete unity. He prayed for us. Essentially, Jesus is saying that we were created in such a way that we are capable of attaining oneness with God and each other. What would it look like if the church really believed this and started pursuing unity seriously? The fact that we are of a holy family still blows my mind. That when I die and my body returns to God, there is a family waiting for me to receive me. Still blows my mind. There is something supernatural that happens when the church gathers in unity. Every sacred component of Sunday gatherings remind us of the sweet fragrance of unity, singing in one accord, listening and learning together, lamenting together, praying together, serving together, participating in communion, communion together. This is why King David says how good and pleasing it is when God's people live together in unity. How good is it? Again, there's something beautiful and supernatural hap happening when the church gathers in unity. And haven't they get it? King David got it. They understand the oneness between God and man. And yet, in our culture, our world today, most divided hour of the day, the people who call themselves followers of Christians, followers of Christ, are currently the most divided faith group on earth. Can you even name another religion that has two or three factions? Meanwhile, we split ourselves into de denominations that don't get along. And then those denominations themselves split and divide and don't get along. And we keep breaking apart, breaking apart, breaking apart. 
And then we have people creating their own ideologies and practices saying that they're the only ones who understand the Christian faith. Church, what have we become? Have we built our own kingdoms and forsaken grace? We're living in a time where the American spirit of individualism is harming us and preventing us from maintaining oneness. Everything is so self-focused and me-focused. What's pleasing me? What's in it for me? Oh, that pastor didn't really say the right thing, so I'm going to this church. Or, you know, that family ministry wasn't as five-star-ish, so I'm going to this church. You know what? They have this here, so I'm going to go over here. Everything is so me focus. Instead, how is this actually pleasing God? How is this glorifying him? It reminds me of what Jesus says to his disciples as they were having a heated discussion about which of them was the greatest. He turns around and he says to them, what are you arguing about? They're walking with Jesus and arguing about power. I feel like Jesus could ask the same question to the American church. What are you arguing about? You're arguing over power? Power? Are you serious since when? Who told you you had to be powerful? Who told you you had to store up your own kingdom? It has always been my grace. It has always been me. See, unity dispels the powers of dominance over body, space, and gifting. Say it again. Unity dispels the powers of dominance over power, over body, space, and gifting. I'm not the only one in this room who has a gift. There's many people who, are, who have the gift of apostleship and prophecy, mercy, service. But so much of our church is oriented towards this way, one person. But unity dispels that. Unity says to the stranger, the least of these, no longer will you be seen as an outsider, looking in, trying to force your way to the table of belonging. You are mine. You belong to me. I have my designs on you. Here in my kingdom, there is rest for your weary feet. There is shelter. There is a feast, and there is belonging. It's a unity that speaks to the heart of abandonment, to offer a cup of welcome. It's a unity that cannot be wavered by ethnicity, class, gender, or works, but rather by faith alone in Jesus. Faith alone in Jesus. It's a unity that expresses itself in how much we are loved as God's children. God's entire economy is built on unity and family. 
The very chambers of his kingdom are of a new people that reach beyond the laws that bind us and the pains of circumcision and exclusion. It's his grace that binds us together in unity. And I get it. Unity is such this word, it's like this magical word that we just kind of throw around in our culture today, especially in the church. And I understand the pursuit of unity is hard work because the love of God is costly. Unity is a lifelong work that has to start by dying to self. We have to die to ourselves in order to address the disunity in the world. So let us be encouraged. Let us, be, let us continue the hard work of maintaining unity, noticing and celebrating the differences of each other. Under one faith, under one baptism, one spirit, one body, and one God. Unity is possible. It is possible. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for praying for us. God, you are still praying for us to be unified to you. And God, we are constantly quarreling and arguing about power. And God, we need your spirit. We need to be reminded of our position before and where we are now, that we were Gentiles coming into your story, and now we are adopted to your family. So God, help us understand our adoption. Help us learn how to love our brothers and sisters who may think differently than us, live differently than us. Because, God, you call us to oneness, you call us to unity, and there's something powerful that happens when your church gets together in unity. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.